0: Hello and welcome to Credit Shift News and Update. I'm Paul Sweeney, Co-Founder and Chief Strategy Officer here at Webio. And today I am joined by our COO at Webio, Delia Jones. And we will be exploring recent news, stories, events and trends in the credit industry. Okay, so let's dive into the details. Firstly, the UK's finance household review uh, for the first quarter of 2020 shows a significant decrease in mortgage lending. Despite this, house prices continue to rise with a 0.5% increase reported by Halifax's Housing Price Index. This increase, likely driven by a shortage in supply rather than affordability measures, has pushed the average house price to £283,615, over £40,000 higher than pre-pandemic levels. Interestingly, there's been a 3% drop in deposit levels this quarter. This could indicate that the savings buffer built up during the pandemic is starting to diminish, although overall savings are still relatively high. The review advises monitoring overdraft debt closely, as an increase in this area could signal escalating financial stress among households. It's important to note that savings are not evenly distributed lower income households are less likely to have significant savings. In line with this, a report from shelter organization highlights a concerning trend. A third of private renters could not afford even one month's rent if they lost their job due to inadequate savings. Moving to spending habits, more than a quarter of UK adults are expected to use buy now, pay later, uh, known as BNPL schemes, For Christmas expenses, with this figure rising to over half among parents with young children. A survey from uh, Citizens Advice found that 11% of respondents have used Buy Now Pay Later schemes for groceries, a figure that increased to 35% among regular users of these services. Citizens Advice has seen a 67% increase in people seeking help for Buy Now Pay Later related debts over the past year. Of the 2,156 adults surveyed, 28% plan to use BNPL for holiday spending, jumping to 56% among parents with young children. Alarmingly, 21% of Buy Now Pay Later users have missed or made late payments in the last year, with 10% facing enforcement actions. Additionally, about a third of these users have taken on more debt to cover Buy Now Pay Later installments. Dame Claire Moriarty, Chief Executive of Citizens Advice, emphasizes the urgent need for regulation in this area. She warns that the increasing reliance on buy now, pay later for additional Christmas expenses could push already financially strained households over the edge. I guess it's stay tuned as we continue to explore these critical trends. Delia, these are, um, I guess, in the round kind of worrying figures um, about the uptake. I, I don't know if You've seen anything with our clients of of increased activity at this time of year,
1: yeah, so it's definitely worrying and it's um, completely understandable. obviously the pressures are on for everybody with Christmas and uh, young children they all want what uh, what they want the the Christmas list get longer also um, they're just looking at the private renters that you mentioned sort of rent going up I think it's up about twenty two percent on last year yeah that on people that didn't have a month's rent in the bank you know there's not that um there's not that additional capacity there so it's um you yeah, know worrying times for everyone and i guess it's it's just about um how can how can we best help um so both from personal experience and from looking at the conversations that are happening across the, the webio platform um you can see you know this isn't a case of people trying to avoid payment there's just no money there
0: yeah we we see that uh, i mean across all the conversations in the industry that we have, the, the, the focus of helping people not just pay their bills, but get out of debt. It, it's a, a change of focus that's happened over a couple of years. And I, I keep on seeing this reflected back in the conversations we have at a professional level in the industry. It's, it's really a, a sea change. Um, we're going to come back to some of those um, issues later on, but I'm going to move on to the next section here on AI and recent legislation. Um, there's been a court of justice of the EU known as CJEU. They've made a landmark ruling this year on the EU's general data protection regulation or GDPR. It states that decision making processes using personal data through scoring systems are unlawful. This ruling is particularly relevant for social security and credit agencies as it clarifies that GDPR prohibits subjecting individuals to automated decision making that significantly impacts them. Now I'm going to just take a break down this one for a second. There's a lot more detail on it, but I think we've seen this one coming for a while in that um, when you're using any form of AI, you've got to have like a deep view on what your data's been trained on, how your models work, having explainable models, um, and ultimately who and how decisions get made with that. Um, I know we've had a lot of, and you've had a lot of experience with that, Delia. Uh, this won't surprise you that much, I don't think.
1: Yeah, and it's it's great actually to see the the conversation now becoming so front and center in everyone's mind because uh, AI is going to impact us all. And what we don't want to do is build in and amplify the the prejudices that are already there in society. And that is the biggest risk we see that happening with the AI that's already there. So from our perspective at Webio, it's definitely something that we've been building into our thinking for the last two, three years um, around how can we explain the AI? How can we evidence it? Um, and ultimately, how can we make sure that it's um, it's treating customers fairly and that they can understand why they're being treated in the way that they are?
0: I think that's just, I mean, it's great for us, obviously, to have spent that time and be, be ready for this. But I, I, I think uh, this is going to be one that people are going to bang up against and there's going to be arguments against. And I've already had a couple of conversations in the industry with people who say that this, you know, how do you how do you change the whole credit scoring industry uh, if this is the way they're using data? Or I think this will bump up against some customer duty rules as well um, around how you interact with customers and ask them for information. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, this was well signposted for a couple of years that, that this was going to be the way things were going to happen. I'd be surprised if, um, let's just say, reputable companies were caught on the back foot uh, with, with AI that didn't allow you to do this.
1: I think as well as an industry, it's a, an industry that's well used to regulation. It's well used to meeting compliance requirements. So if any industry is, is ready for this, then um, the sort of credit collections, payments industries will be all over it.
0: That's a great point. I mean, there's other industries where the culture just will be different, and uh, we'll find it maybe harder to adjust. Um, the The case that was brought about this decision involved Germany's largest private credit agency. Uh, I hope I pronounce this right, Schufa, S C H U F A, and the National Family Allowance Fund in France. The court's decision limits the use of personal data in scoring algorithms and according to some experts negates the legitimate interest justification that organizations previously used for scoring so the ruling also casts doubt on the legality of similar algorithms used in public services so it might be the case that you have to evidence the impact it has like is, is it a severe impact on people is it a broad impact socially um and maybe those two things are very prevalent in public services and therefore they have a higher kind of level of um, responsibility in that regard. Um, Moving on, I think uh, the implications are clear that this is going to be about public services, uh, particularly broadly hit by that. But it's also a week when we saw the EU's AI Act passed. Um, Again, this is something that brings larger AI platforms under regulatory scrutiny, requiring them to disclose their operational mechanisms, the data they are trained on, their approach to automate decisions. And this, again, has been something that has been well uh, well, um, which prepared for. But I think people don't really understand that if you're using a very broad language model and you're trying to get it to do things that that th- these language models also have to be publishing some of their tests up front, they're going to have to fall under some much more regulation than they did before. Let's let's see. How it, how it pans out but um, it, no doubt the EU thought it was uh, very very important and they really got the legislation in place a lot faster than we would have previously expected. I don't know Delia I'm pouncing this question on you but any reflections on that at all?
1: So hopefully the the EU legislation this time will be legislation that can sort of um, be applicable with the technology as the technology grows because the technology is moving so fast. Legislation takes time. Um, so what we need is legislation that will enable that technology to be developed. This is a really important conversation that all of us need to be engaged in. All of us need to be having and we need to be sort of lobbying our, our MPs and ensuring that the protections are in place. Um, just because we can doesn't always mean we should. So we need to make sure that the AI would we're sort of adopting and um, bringing in is well thought out and um, doing what we want it to do. So I think it's definitely, um, yeah, hopefully this legislation will um, enable things to progress in a a much more um, positive way for the people that will be impacted.
0: Yeah, I I think that we're seeing um, the EU really moving fast on this when you think about what happened with social platforms without having to point out that it's it's Facebook and Twitter of old, now X. Um, they're two American platforms. They fall under American rules. They're under American jurisdiction. And the EU had little or no power about what happens in those platforms and really found it difficult to to impose some some rules on them. Um, and they've also found that, and we saw the threat to democracy that happened from that. Um, and I think they've also seen from the, the rise of the hyperscaling platforms like Google and um, Amazon, that the American platforms really took over too quickly. So there's there's definite thrust of trying to support European language models. European companies pushing forward. Um, I, I, I get a sense that there's more than a bit of it, like a bit of protectionism involved in this too. Um, but I, I, I think there's more here. I, I'm looking at this some of the American conversations about this, and. They're, they're faced with similar problems of, um, of how to regulate and then how to regulate in such a way that the industry is able to compete and innovate. And I think that depending on which side of the political spectrum you're on, if you're more, much more free market orientated, you really want to let it rip, as, as Boris would say, and just you know the market will take care of it. Um, and on the other side, you may be over regulated, so it stifles and, and, and dies. Obviously, we're looking for that, that balance in the middle.
1: It's quite exciting though, isn't it to have um so you're right about America sort of really owning the space when it comes to um the social platforms, but it's quite exciting to imagine what a European AI you know a european AI led environment would look like because the European mindset is very different to the American one. It's a different way of thinking, it's a different um, balance of power between the the consumer and the enterprise. so yeah, I'm quite excited, I think it's a it's a great sign, so let's see what happens.
0: It's definitely going to be an interesting 12 months, if not 24 months. And it is like yeah. we are, I, we say this kind of every week, maybe, but this is a platform shift. Like, this is a big, big shift from the way technology was before, how we work. Like, this is a significant change. Thank you for that. And I, I think you're uh, like ideally placed to have that conversation given your role here at WebIO 2 So, thank you for that. On to the third part of our podcast where we pick out a report and delve into it and maybe explore some of its consequences. And you can add it to your own strategic radar. This week, it's a report called Two Nations, the state of poverty in the UK. It was published by the Centre for Social Justice. It is a comprehensive report spanning over 300 pages and revisits the key drivers of poverty identified by the Centre 20 years ago and examines their current state. The headline really is there's been an acceleration of poverty drivers during the pandemic. The report reveals that the pandemic has significantly exasperated the impact of the five driving forces of poverty, family breakdown, addiction, worklessness, serious personal death and education failure. Notably, there has been a staggering 700% increase in calls to domestic abuse helplines. Mental health issues among young people have worsened with the rate rising from one in nine to one in six severe school absence has jumped by 134% and there's an 86% increase in people seeking help for addictions. This is against some positive progress uh, in the longer term. Despite these alarming statistics, and they are alarming, there have been some positive developments. Unemployment rates have fallen, literacy levels among young people have improved and the overall crime rates have decreased. However, The nature of unemployment and employment has shifted towards more part-time, insecure jobs. Wages are stagnating and this is leading to over 2 million people relying on welfare to supplement their income. The mental health and economic um, activity says that the most disadvantaged individuals perceive their mental health as one of their biggest barriers, a concern that ranks fifth among the general public. The number of people economically inactive due to long term sickness has risen to over 2.6 million people in the UK, an increase of nearly 500,000 since the COVID 19 pandemic. Over half of these individuals suffer from depression, anxiety, or other mental health issues. The cost of poor housing and low skills. The financial impact of poor housing quality on the state is significant, costing 1.4 billion annually. However, the combined cost of low literacy and numeracy skills is even more staggering, amounting to over 100 billion a year, a figure that's also likely to be reflected in the cost of crime for people fall into a life of crime. Um, Conversations with professionals in the credit and collections industry uh, have revealed to me that over half the people seeking help with economic vulnerability are already employed. Additionally, uh, it's been stated that digital interactions with debt collections are becoming increasingly important to all players in the business. They help de-escalate situations as machines, unlike humans, do not judge or make people feel like failures when they're interacted with, if your conversations or interactions are designed correctly. I think um that was a lot of information in a short time there, Delia, but I think it's um... I personally was taken back by the the depth of the impact that COVID seems to have made on people here. I know we were, you know, we were getting a lot of information during the pandemic about the need to stay indoors, uh, uh, to work from home, etc. But obviously, for people in disadvantaged areas, this was a real. This was this really exasperated the situation.
1: It, it did, and in the UK specifically, COVID came on the back of austerity, so that there's not a lot of um, support there. Um, so I guess you can see why people are struggling. One of the figures you said there, Paul, which was sort of really um, eye opening, is the amount of people that are employed and still, um, you know, still not able to sort of survive and thrive. Yeah, that is. Um, it it's a really challenging environment there for for people and i think that's yeah just something really that needs to make us all stop and and sort of check what what should be done to to change that because if you are employed you should you should be able if society's working you should be able to to um sort of survive and thrive
0: i i think some of the the details now i i got halfway through the report, it's a 300 page report, but I think some of the things, other things that I picked out of that were, um, that if you're, if you are, uh, like at that balance of trying to get back to work, there's a fear that if you come off of some of the social welfare benefits that you, and the job doesn't work out or the job disappears because it's an unstable part-time job in some, some way, um, then you don't want to go through that period of trying to get enrolled again and qualified again for Social Security. So I think they're trying to get to a stage where you can kind of move from Social Security to employment and then give a kind of guarantee to them that if the job isn't there in a month's time, that you can come back in on the same Social Security. And I think that would would give people the first. The first step to getting into the next um uh the next area of employment, And and the other thing was, that it actually, when again, according to report, I have to say, according to the report, that when people are looking at the cost advantages of of either going back to work or trying to maybe get one of their children diagnosed with ADHD or with um, anxiety or or some other registered issue, um, that's more beneficial to them at home because of the extra support you get. So there's really that age old kind of poverty trap and that we're, we're Holding people in the one position there?
1: There could be. I think with the, the diagnosis is uh, it's always difficult because it's very easy to label um, people on the lower end of the incomes as okay, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to play the system. Mm. There's elements of that all across the social spectrum of playing the system. Um, it's yeah, I suppose it's it's just it's difficult, isn't it? And as you say, one of the things with going back to work is childcare and the cost of childcare is, is very prohibitive yeah, sort yeah, of, yeah. um, my kids are, are older now, thankfully, but when they were at nursery, it would be 900 pound, I think a month for, um, the oldest one. So yeah. that was, it's a significant chunk of, of your salary. It's almost, you know, for a lot of people that doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't add up to send your child to a, a private nursery and nurseries without state funding are obviously going to be in that difficult situation because you need to pay someone less than you earn. So, the nursery staff aren't paid well either. So, it's a very, um, yeah, it's a tricky one to solve, definitely.
0: Yeah, I remember for for myself um, um, that, you know, you have your mortgage and you think that that's going to be your biggest cost. You close behind it when we came from Dublin to Limerick here was um, our telecoms bill. I get that in the year 2000, 2001. Our telecoms costs were nearly as big as our mortgage. And then our kids came along and then their, um, Fresh costs were, were 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 high again. It's a tough squeeze for people with young kids. You know, it's um, and trying to do it on your own, then that's another level of pressure. And then trying to do it on your own in a disadvantaged area, then that's a whole other level of pressure. And I think that when we're like we do do try and stay cognizant of the lives that people live, and we say that um. Trying to discover the circumstances that somebody's in and try to understand those circumstances and help them plot a way through it. Life is very complicated. Like, life is very interconnected. And, you know, we might be designing a form or trying to elicit information from people. And it just, I think, is this kind of report keeps front and center that people live complicated lives. They have a lot on their plates, they have a lot of pressures. And, um, it's not a simple matter of, Oh, I just forgot to pay. Sometimes there's, there's a lot going on. And it's, uh, if, if, if technology can help, uh, with that process, I think that's great, but we shouldn't really try and think that technology is going to solve people's problems. Like it's a, it's a much bigger issue than that. Um, well, I think that's us covered for this week. We have a, a quick update on, um, trends and uh, economic and technical trends in in the credit shift. But we thought that this week, maybe with these kind of reports coming out, it was just a time to step back again and just look at the fact that people are living in fairly difficult circumstances. It's important that we understand it and empathize with and try and get as deep an understanding as we can, even when we're doing strategic reviews and technology, the social, technology, economic impact. Uh, is an important part of our planning process. If you're interested in these reports, do check out our show notes, where we have links to uh, the sources for all our stories and the reports that we make reference to. Delia, it was special to have you on today and fortuitous, given your background (laughs) and all these compliance and AI issues that you're here with us. And I know you feel passionately about these issues too. So hopefully this won't be the last time you uh, are on this show.
1: Excellent. Thanks, Paul.
0: Thank you very much take care folks and join us again next week for credit shift keep your eye open for a new credit shift interview which should be dropping soon and if we don't see you again before christmas have a safe christmas and enjoy it thank you very much